0: Today is August 13th, 2014, and the title of the message is Lost and Found. Uh, Turn with me to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. This is going to be the parable of the lost son. Uh, Tonight I like to call it the parable of the running father. (laughs) There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The father ran. Now there are many sides and characters and behind-the-scenes plots that have been going on that's going on in this story, that have amazed the human race for over two thousand years. But tonight I want to focus on the running father. See, now in the Jewish community in this day, they observe the practice called kezazah. Basically, when a Jewish boy squandered his inheritance among the Gentiles, if he dared to try to return home, the entire community would be waiting for him with pots in their hands, and they would break the pots before him. What they were supposed to do is uh, symbolize how destructive he had been, how he had broken his relationship with that community. Y'all you know the Jewish culture, it's a very visual culture, very dramatic gestures. I mean, just think about this. As this boy is coming home, no doubt already broken up and destroyed by the way the world has spit him out. He's coming home with his head laid low, walking through a sea of people, He's breaking these pots at his feet. See, again, the message is supposed to, supposed to uh, portray something. It said This is the brokenness that you have caused in our community. You have broken everything that is good. You have broken trust. You have broken community. And worse yet, you have broken the heart of your father. It says, let your damage is beyond repair. So let this be a symbol of your brokenness. Let these broken pieces be your broken life. You are not whole. You are not welcome. You are not family. You are cut off. The name of the, the ceremony, kazaza, is the Hebrew word for the cutting off that puts a new emphasis on why that father ran through his son. Luke chooses a technical term here to describe what the father did. It's, uh, it's typically reserved for athletic contests. I mean, the idea is that he, he raced to his son. He sprinted. Now, in the Middle East, the, the patriarch of a family, a man of great dignity and honor, usually dressed in long, ornate robes, uh, he always walked in a very slow, Dignified fashion. He never ran. I mean, to do so would be beneath him. So why? Why does the father run to the son instead of just waiting for him to come to him? Because he can't stop thinking about his broken boy. And if the village gets to my boy's boy first, it will mean kazaza. It will mean brokenness. It will mean shame and humiliation. And that might do him in. That might crush his heart could crush his spirit, I might lose him forever. Because I cannot let that happen. I have to be the first one to my boy. So that father picks up his robes, and he starts running. (laughs) Now, the people listening to this story, they would have understood what Jesus was was saying when that father ran. Uh, They would have understood that that the father was placing himself in a very vulnerable position. I mean, he was taken on the dishonor and the shame and the indignity that should have all rights fallen on the prodigal boy. But the father, filled with compassion, lets all that humiliation fall on himself. I mean, of all the twists and turns of this remarkable story, I think this is one of the most unexpected. The father does the unpredicted and runs because that father never stopped loving that boy no matter how far he went from home. God is so filled with compassion for you, whatever distant country you have been to. You take one step towards him, pick up his robes, bare his legs, and he will come sprinting to you. One thing that amazes me here is just how vulnerable the Father is, how, how vulnerable God is with us, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty private person. Uh, I don't like to put myself out there. I don't really like to share my feelings and let them be known because that's vulnerable. I mean, having your, having your stuff out there for people to, to know and to judge, often like a, like a scared child who's afraid to really experience true love and uh, would never love somebody else unless I know that emotion's not going to come back to hurt me. But see, God's not like that. It's truly amazing how vulnerable he is with us. He doesn't hide his feelings from his creation. He doesn't hide his feelings from his people. Despite the fact that we continue to reject him, that we continue to reject his love and his offer of restoration. All the while though, he's still calling us back, opening himself up to more hurt and more humiliation. Yet he is willing to do it because he knows there will be those who do come back to him. Throughout the word, I'm just amazed at how God is so vulnerable with his people. He just, the way he lays his heart bare. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to God's sincerity here. Here's God talking to Israel as a husband would talk to his wife. You can just hear the brokenness and the, The anguish God feels as he longs for his bride to return to him. Starting in verse 1, it says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. Remember, this is God speaking. You know, sometimes we think of God up there as this like machine, it's totally void of. Any emotions? He's just controlling everything, judging everybody. Has no concern at all. But listen to the words he's used here. He says, oh, "I remember how devoted you were to me." Then he goes on to verse five and he says, "What did your ancestors? What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me?" And doesn't that sound like so many people's lives, where you know God? so connected with God, their walk with God was so, so wonderful. And you know, they come down from one of these mountaintop experiences, and they're in the valley, and they turn away towards something else. Something else entices us, and God's just left there going, what did I do? Let's get down to verse uh, 13. It says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So he says they committed two sins. One was they chose their sin. But I think what really broke the heart of God was they chose their sin over him. I mean, you know it's one thing to never know God and to choose sin. But it's another thing altogether to have been enlightened to have tasted the sweet heavenly gift and the goodness of the word of God and then turn back to your old sinful way of life. Yeah. And God's going, wait a second, so you left me the spring of living water to go do your own thing? You thought maybe you could dig a hole deep enough and fill it up with water and then it would be a better supply? And it's a broken cistern. I mean, it can't even hold water. That's what temptation is, friends, things that draw us away from him, things that we choose over a love relationship with God. And it's not that you don't love God, right? I mean, we love God, and in your heart you're saying, I love him, but every once in a while there's this real pull from within you towards something that God prohibits, and you're feeling it so bad. And you're saying, what is wrong with me? I know I love God. Why am I feeling this way? We're going, God, I don't want to go there. I know it's not going to fulfill. I know I can't be happy outside of God. But everything in us is pulling us that way. What are we to do? Here's what we do. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. It's this idea of a person being just so focused, so in love with Jesus, that they're not even noticing anything else. You don't know what else is going on in the room. You're just so focused on Jesus, so in love, so focused on eternal things, that everything else just falls to the wayside. That's the idea. We have to run towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eye on him. So that, yeah, we've got all these things and distractions dangling in front of us, but we don't even notice them. So there are so many reasons why you should walk away from whatever temptation that's facing you. But let me just give you a real big one right now. It's, it's a simple truth, but it's true. God is better. <laughs> that's it. He is, God is better, he's so much better. It's not even a comparison. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take a theological degree to understand this. God is better. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's a truth that I'm going to hold with me. When I'm, when I'm too tempted from things and things that are drawing me away from him, I just have to remind myself remind me of this simple truth. Jesus is better. Amen. <laughs> Let's take another look at another example of Scripture here. Let's turn to Hosea. Chapter three, starting in verse one. And before we jump into there, let's just do a quick review of what's going on in Hosea. So God opens up in chapter one, and he tells his prophet, Hosea, his man of God, to go marry a prostitute." I mean, can you imagine hearing those words? <laughs> no, me neither. But see, he's trying to get a point across. Again, here we see God being vulnerable with his people. He's got to share his deep pain. He's painting a real life picture of what's going on between him and his people. Uh, look how the complete Jewish Bible translates these words spoken by God. He can feel the anger in his voice as he's trying to just get his point across. He says, go marry a whore and have children with this whore. For the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai. God is mad. (laughs) And rightfully so. This is a righteous anger. It's a holy jealousness for his people. But in verse 3, Hosea goes and he marries a prostitute named Gomer. I tell you what, I don't think Hosea gets enough credit that he deserves. (laughs) I mean, God asked him to do some pretty tough things. But to his credit, he just does them. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates he fought God about it. He just simply heard the word of the Lord and obeyed. Much like Noah, I mean, no matter how crazy it sounded, he just trusted in the Lord and obeyed. That kind of complete and unquestioning obedience is worth imitating. Uh, But I'm not advocating to marry a prostitute. (laughs) <laughs> Make that clear. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't That's part right. of that wasn't part of the message. <laughs> All right, so now we pick up in chapter three. Now we learn that Gomer has actually left Hosea. She abandoned Hosea. Despite having a man of God selflessly rescue her from a life of prostitution and slavery, she chooses to go back to her old way of life. She leaves the spring of living water. She goes back to her own cistern, her broken cistern that cannot hold water. Wow. So at this point, I'm sure Hosea is like, what did I do wrong? Why would she choose that life? over the one that I can offer her. I mean, if it was me, I would have said good riddance. Uh, listen, I tried. I tried and she rejected me, so forget her. But look what God says next. <laughs> Again, look how open and vulnerable God is even after experiencing such rejection. Verse 1, 3-1, he says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man, it is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. God's reaction says, Go find her, Hosea. Go find her. And look how he says to love her. Just like the love of the Lord for Israel. Now where it says Israel. It means Israel, but it's also prophetically speaking of God's love for the entire world. He says, go find her again, Hosea. This is like the love of the children for Israel who look to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. In other words, they like the things of society, stuff, possessions that the world could offer. They thought they could find love and meaning and purpose in that. God says, go, go find her. Boy, that must have been a heart wrenching process. As you go looking for your wife, who was a former prostitute and now who's back into prostitution, now where do you go looking for her? How messy is that search? How painful is that pursuit? As he walked the streets, streets that say, uh, you don't go to those neighborhoods. Men of God should never be seen in those type of places and buildings. But here's Hosea, looking for who? His wife, of all people. So we go on to verse 2. He says, So I bought her. Wait a second here. She's your wife, Hosea. She's already yours. What was that scene like? Because Gomer is back in the sex slave industry. And I can picture it as Hosea finds her somewhere on a platform, chained, naked, being sold to the highest bidder. Hosea sees his wife, the mother of his three children. And he looks and says to her pimp, Uh, excuse me, that's my wife. He says, I don't care who you think she is. This is her price. And he pays. He pays for what was already his. Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. You see, mankind is the unique possession of creator God. How much? And Hosea gets the money. What was that exchange like? And Hosea looks into the wife, into the eyes of his wife. No doubt she hung her head in embarrassment. But he's found me. I've abandoned him. I've abandoned our three children. And yet he insists on buying me. Buy me. Now let's remember there was others there that were willing to buy her. But they sought to buy her to use her. Hosea seeks to buy her, to heal her. Verse four, he says, "For the Israelites will live in many days. De- uh, Israelites will live many days." Now, this is where Hosea starts to shift. He starts speaking prophetically. This is really no longer about him and Gomer. It's about something to come. It's about something much, much bigger. He says, "Afterward, there's going to come a season. Because there'll be no king." It'll be difficult, it'll be unclear, it'll be challenging. Which is afterwards, the Israelites will seek, will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord. Now Israel and Judah knew what it was to fear the Lord. They were unable to keep his commands and because of it, there was judgment and there was wrath. But there will come a day, Hosea prophesies, there will come a Messiah. And he will finally satisfy and appease the wrath of God. And the fear of the Lord in those days will be in all of his goodness. The fear of the people will not be of terror. It will be in the all of his graciousness towards humanity. Look at Isaiah fifty-seven fourteen. He says, I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them. I hid my face in anger. And yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them, and I will restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips, saying, Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Amen. y'all see Hosea is a great picture. Hosea just bought Gomer, even though she was already his. This is the picture of the gospel. Salvation completes the work in spite of her sins, in spite of her doings, in spite of her running away. And then he stands up and he says, there will come a day. A King David will rise, and in those days they will fear his goodness. Y'all, these are the days that we live in. Our Hosea has come. Salvation has come. And he found you. He found me. And he had to walk to the most despicable, places, he had to be around broken, sinful humanity, don't you see as Hosea goes searching for his wife, Jesus went searching for the salvation of the world, and by the way, when God found you, you were not so nice and neat and put together, you were in chains, you were naked, you were sinful, and so was I. our gracious God said, how much? How much? And the answer was the blood of your son. Because then and only then can they, humanity, avert the wrath and justice that is rightfully on their heads. God's response was simply, very well. Very well. I'll send my son. saints, we can never forget what Jesus did for us. We can never forget that we were once going in desperate need of a Savior, in desperate need of Jesus. can't forget what Jesus did for you. You say, why? Why would I want to remember that old life? Why not just forget about all that? We don't remember so that we can have this horrible view of ourselves and fall into some type of self-loathing attitude full of guilt and condemnation. Mm-mm. It's quite the opposite. Remember so that Jesus' sacrifice and his mercy and his love are always fresh in our mind. Jesus' sacrifice and the spilling of his precious blood should be fresh in your mind when you are tempted to go back to your old sinful ways. Amen. His mercy and his forgiveness should be in your life, should be on the forefront of your thoughts or interacting with this lost world. That way you know he can forgive them and show them mercy, just like you will show mercy. And you were forgiven. And Jesus' love for me should be what fuels my passion to follow after and obey my king no matter what he asks of me. So it's not remembering us to be condemned. It's remembering when Jesus found you and he set you free remembering when he began that healing process in you. You can never forget. Look at Paul. He's constantly reminding himself and those he ministers to of his life prior to Christ. Galatians 1:13 he says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Or in 1 Corinthians 15 9 through 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and it was not without effect. Here he summarizes it in 1 Timothy one, twelve through 16. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, Paul doesn't say these things to condemn himself. He's reminding himself and those he's ministering to how Christ found him in his sin, and it's what Christ did for him personally that drives everything Paul does. He knows and we know we are nothing without Christ. It is Christ in us who compels our actions. What does Jesus say about those who have been forgiven much versus those who have been forgiven little? Mm-hmm. Those who are forgiven much love much. Mm-hmm. And Those who are forgiven little love little. And that's not a... A matter of the amount of sin in a a particular person. We're all monstrous sinners. It's just a matter of the amount of sin that you've allowed Jesus to find and remove from you. And during that process, you just love him that much more for it. (laughs) Let's go back to the parable of the running father. Now the prodigal son, he had his speech all planned out, right? He had his own plan of what it looked like to return to his father. But the fact of the matter is, he never would have reached the Father because there would have been too many people there, holding their pots, waiting for him, reminding him of his shortcomings, telling him that he was cut off and that he was broken and he can never be restored again. See, in this story, Jesus is properly defining repentance. He's showing us that repentance is a gift. He's defining repentance to mean accept being found. When we feel responsible for our own repentance, much like the Pharisees did, there's this tremendous self-imposed pressure to be good, to pay it back. But the inherent problem with this approach is when we focus on that, and our eyes get off of God. And then we're caught in this vicious cycle of self-righteousness and guilt. But yet when we realize that God has taken the responsibility. With joy for the finding and the restoring of us, we discover that much of what controlled us is released. When our focus is on Him and not on us, we find great freedom. (coughs) The question is will you accept His gift of repentance? Will you allow Jesus to find you? And, friends, it's not a one time gift. This is not a one-time decision. Your walk with God, it's a lifelong process. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work in our lives, finding areas that are not submitted to Jesus. Finding the sin we didn't even know we had. But don't be mistaken, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus who is finding it, not you. The hard truth is I just often don't want to be found. I don't want to accept the repentance. I want to remain in disobedience. I want to remain in sin. When I find myself in this situation, I have to set my eyes on Jesus. I must remember what he did for me 2,000 years ago on Calvary. I must remember the great price he paid for us, the price he paid while we were his enemies. While we prostituted ourselves to this world, Jesus saw us and he bought us. He bought us so that he could heal us. Yet often we have the audacity to reject his healing. With this perspective in mind, it's with an eternal perspective that should we look and ask ourselves why do I reject this awesome gift of repentance? Why? When we get the right perspective, We realize that by not accepting the repentance, we are forsaking the very thing that gives us life. We are spitting out the living water from heaven and are instead drinking our own filthy water held in broken cisterns and is unable to give us any real life. Now, saints, we are still called to action. We still have the righteous acts of the saints to perform, to seek truth, to endure. Overcome for the cause of Christ. And this body is an exceptional example of persevering in the face of hardship and persecution. And our King Jesus is looking down. And he is pleased with it. But while we're doing these things, we must never forget why we're doing all that we do. Why are we even able to do it in the first place? I want to read this last verse, uh, and it's going to close my message. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. All right, we are about to hear the words of our resurrected king. Seated at the right hand of the Father, this is Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body, overseeing his church. He's got his aerial view, and he's able to see all, both the good and the bad. He is looking down on his beloved bride, whom he gave himself up for, who then and now is making her holy, cleansing herself with the word, so he, cannot, so he can present herself as a radiant bride. So as we close the message tonight, let's lift our eyes on Jesus and listen to the words of our beloved king. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Whoever has hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God.
1: Amen. Could you put Colossians 1 and 13 on the screen for us? What a great word by Brother Alex. I think he loves the Lord, don't you? Paris Reedhead was one of those men that was an artisan in the way that he could articulate truths in the Bible. And he had a message that was called, He Bought Me to Set Me Free. And in it, he tells a story that much reminds me of what Alex has preached. He said that a man walked through New Orleans and he saw what were the slave blocks and there was a beautiful young woman that men of the worst sort were beginning to bid upon, buying a human life. He said a man very resolutely walked to the slave masters and offered five times above what anyone else had offered. And it hushed the crowd. Then he went to the woman who was in chains. And he grabbed her chains. And of course she kicked and screamed and fought against. And he tried to lead her in the direction that he wanted her to go. And it was a battle, every bit of it. She spit on him. She cursed him. She attacked him. And as he drugged her to the nearest constable, He signed her emancipation papers because he had bought her to set her free. The king that we have is not interested in religious bondage. He's interested in you loving him because he set you free. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. If that weren't enough, he's given us redemption and forgiveness of sins. If that weren't enough, Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 says, the whole world is mine. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He didn't just call you to himself. He didn't just buy you out of prostitution. He's elevated you to be his representative to the rest of the world. Tell me, is that a great God? Could we stand to our feet for a God like that?